Invention is often described as 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. In the high-flying game of venture capital, where the stakes are in the billions of dollars and the competition is on a global scale, the odds for true invention are even longer. Words like innovation are often bandied about, with a recent entrance like disruption taking a more aggressive spin on the culture of Silicon Valley. But the true success stories, while building on the backs of some genuinely breakthrough developments such as the microprocessor and the personal computer, have given way to more derivative works such as scrapbooking on a website, as in the case with Pinterest, and taxicabs on a smartphone with Uber. Venture capital, originally a term connoting adventure, has turned it into something much more mundane, short-sighted, and in many ways a sign of the times of diminished expectations and reduced ambition. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been ideal. Hello, welcome back to the 20th century. My name is Hans Launder. Today I'm joined by uh, two very special co-hosts. We have Mr. Adam Smith. Hey everyone. And Mr. Hank Oslo. Uh, good evening to everyone. Nick could not get a room at the library tonight, so he would not be joining us. Uh, Adam, do we have any announcements to make? No. No, we can jump in. Okay. No announcements. So, today we're talking about uh, venture capital. VCs, as they're often abbreviated as. Not uh, not the VC of the 70s that you might have heard of, by the Vietnam, but uh, the new VC which is uh, basically an instrument of the larger financial network that uh, underpins much of the modern American There's sort of an interesting breed of uh, financial entities, uh, very unique to the United States, essentially a a wholly American um, creation. There's a a great article that came out by an American Affairs Journal by Robin uh, Klingler Vidra, Building the Venture Capital State. Uh, very, very good article. Everyone should read American Affairs, by the way. Good publication. Got a lot of interesting work. Um, and the, the general thesis of the article is that uh, there, there's been a, a rash com- of countries that have been attempting to rebuild the Silicon Valley model and the VC or the venture capital model domestically. We've got to build an incubator. Right. But she, you know, uh, lays out very clearly that uh, this is, in fact, not very possible without extensive examination of how VCs came to be and why they're a uniquely American thing and why most attempts by countries are failing or sort of middling uh, in their imitation of the United States. In a sense. Uh, for a long time, I think that people have just assumed venture capital firms uh, 
or created in the post-war era, and that's true to an extent. Uh, they are very much a, a post-World War II um, financial entity that was really much more codified starting in the 40s and, and 50s as a means of distributing capital from wealthy investors and from um, small funds, often just created by wealthy investors for various purposes, to technical ventures. Uh, especially in 1950s America was the, the beginning of what we'd call big science. Uh, this is when you know the traditional fields of science had become so immersed in daily American life due to due to the war that uh, now they were being commercialized everything from aerospace to chemistry to uh, physics to uh, things like gas production to uh, a lot of things that had more to do with uh, general quality of life or amenities of life, television radio advancements transportation um, pharmaceuticals. A lot of these things needed various means to get funding off. Of them. Um, so there, there was a. There's been a long history of similar activity, though. And uh, there's there's a great book by Tom Nicholson. It actually kind of underpins much of the show, just called VC in American History. Very good book. It's on LibGen. Get it for free. Um, very highly recommended. Uh, probably the book. I, I really have struggled to find another book on venture capitalism, so I, I think it is really uh, the book to read if you want to understand uh, the history of them and, and a really good financial history of the United States. It, it ends up being, um, but he makes a very clever point very early on that the early beginnings of a lot of modern venture capital and uh, you know, modern financialization of capitalism can really be traced back to early United States and to an extent uh, in the 17th century. And uh, in the 17th, 18th centuries, there was an explosion in the whaling industry. Whaling had become um, a very, very lucrative but incredibly risky industry to, uh, to invest in and to engage in. Uh, we had, you know, the world, especially the Anglo world, had perfected ship. And shipbuilding was now very commercialized and very dispersed. There were an efflorescence of shipbuilding companies, of uh, entities outside of the government that built ships for various reasons. There were whole trades that were revolved around this. Um, several generations of, of families could make their livelihood uh, on just various functions related to shipbuilding. In England, this obviously took, uh, took place in the southern coasts. Of England and the United States, this was uh, places like the Mystic River Valley in Connecticut and parts of other parts of New England that uh, parts of the South, actually North Carolina, that had just massive shipbuilding operations. And it was actually very easy to uh, commission a ship to be built for a specific purpose, be augmented for a specific purpose, um, or build sort of a template ship from a general model, and then you would then do the work yourself. There were there were you know. All of these facets of the industry had already been commercialized, fully developed, or fully available to pretty much anyone. It was kind of an interesting time where you had the money. You could just get a ship built. You had a ship. Uh, it, was, it was very simple. There were no uh, regulations, really. Um, there were just kind of common practices around shipbuilding that had evolved and 
uh, companies or people knew generally, and that's why you know you could prevent a ship from sinking, basically. Well, I think what's pertinent to understand about the whaling example is that those ventures were very high risk, high reward, and as opposed to something that is like a barber shop where, okay, there's a steady demand for it. It's somewhat predictable. We can go to a bank for that type of financing. When you're dealing with a, a cast of characters that would sort of be willing to venture out on a sailing ship made of wood, keep in mind, uh, with billowing sails above it in horrible weather to go out and throw long shafts of metal through the backs of these giant beasts that are bigger than the ship themselves. It's like, or almost you got to imagine this, this is like you're gambling here. And so a bank is not going to put that on their balance sheet. And so this is where this type of like venture, like adventure almost uh, concept of financing comes from. They, they go for these very extreme things. And if, and if it works, it pays off huge, but if it doesn't, uh, you get nothing and you lose money. And so that's why they have these kind of portfolios where they expect, you know, most of them to lose money, but then they get these giant home runs. Right. And I think the a more technical financial term that was actually uh, in parlance much more frequently until not too long ago was something called risk capital. We refer to it more as just risk capital, meaning, you know, basically meaning what the, the words intertwine and it's capital that and it typically also had this long tail effect and that you would invest in several, you'd build a portfolio of various risk capital ventures or adventures. And you expected certain ones to definitely pay off. And you kind of pepper the rest of the portfolio, maybe with slightly more amounts of risk that had also potentially very, very high payoff. But it was sort of unknown. It was either new waters or waters that had been difficult. Before. There was also a seasonality element. You know, it was in the winter. A lot of whaling expeditions still in the winter. Whale blubber and whale fat is heat is still very much needed in the in particular. But there's storms. The water can get icy. It's very difficult. People die more frequently. The ship can simply fall apart. It's just more risky. So uh, you know, Nicholson makes the point that. Uh, you know, I'll just quote, in the United States, whaling was one of the earliest kinds of enterprises to grapple with complexity, risk, capital, intermediation, organizational form, ownership structure, incentives, team building, and principal aid trade-offs. The whaling business represents an important starting point exploring the origins of American future financing, particularly this agent trade-offs, principal agent trade-offs. So in the whaling industry, and in uh, other industries, uh, that came about after the Industrial Revolution, the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, especially at first. You had to have agents. You had to have people who were experts in the field. So this is the early era of sort of professional experts. Um, we we kind of it's sort of a given now. There's experts. There's always an expert in something. There's an expert in Russian foreign affairs policy. There's an expert in um, the nuclear industry or in a particular kind of nuclear fusion technology. Maybe not an actual engineer. Maybe he was an engineer at one point. But he's an expert. That's his job is to study and analyze the industry, study and analyze the new technologies from a sort of neutral perspective standpoint and relay information. So we you know because of the whaling industry at first and then later due to cotton and textiles, 
uh, and then just early steam engine automation or uh, engine, we start to see, you know, real kind of experts that uh, are sort of floating free agents and to an extent. Sometimes they're tied to a particular firm, sometimes they're often tied to a person. Um, there were a lot of rich that had agents that were directly under them play information directly to them, sort of as a consultant or a personal consultant about something. So if you know, I would if you were uh, a rich investor in late sixth seventeenth century America, colonial America, you would probably have two or three agents that were particularly good at certain things. Slave auctioneering, whaling, uh, early farming practices, some you know, land speculation, things like that. And that was all they did. They collected information for you because there was no computer network, there was no centralized network information looked at. Um, they spent a great deal of their time just doing field work, going to places, going on ships, going to auctions, seeing okay, what's this actually like? What kind of products are we actually getting? What what's maybe being hidden? from the average consumer or the average buyer. Uh, and this really becomes the crux of modern venture Now we have uh, VC firms now. Um, there's often a, a mix of people right out of business school and uh, you know, former engineers or former programmers uh, or you know, former uh, experts in biopharmaceuticals or, or whatever they can invest in who will work together to kind of combine their knowledge and basically analyze the industry, analyze analyze a kind of standard or technology, and that's their job. Day in, day out, year in, year out, that is their job, is to just collect information, uh, try and find certain patterns, try and find missing information, and then build reports and deliver them to a general partner to the kind of decision to invest. This was a very uniquely Anglo, uh, Anglo-American way of handling large amounts of financial capital, which was rapidly kind of growing to this rapid accumulation of financial capital starting at the 17th century. And actually finding productive ways to disperse it, because there's no government to do this, or there is a government, but that's not its function. Uh, if you want to invest in a particular industry or technology, it's totally on you. You're allowed to invest in whatever you want, think goes, but at the same time, you don't get any help from us. So you have to figure this out on your own. And because there's no codified regulations really on a lot of things, uh, or often the regulations can't be found, or there's no easy way to access them. If there are regulations, you have to have these agents out to determine: you know, Does this actually work? Is it actually a stable product? Is this a stable textile? Is it going to not fall apart? Is it going to poison me? Is there some kind of weird ink on it that's going to seep into my skin? All these kind of questions. Are these whales actually producing the blubber? Are we actually getting enough of them? All of these questions need to be answered, and no one, no one had set you know, really set out to say, this is how you should perform, and this is the, the right answers to the questions. Modern VCs, in particular, their their involvement with um, computer technology, which is probably the most unregulated field of any field in the economy or any sector of the economy, particularly when it comes to software. It's, it's essentially unregulated how you create software and what you do with software. 
it's still very much freewheeling. People do a lot of software development fun on their own. There's projects like the Linux Foundation, which is done mostly out of um, a labor of love and started as one, and I think it continues to still be one. Um, uh, not, well, maybe not so now, much anymore. Not not so much anymore. But there are. That's a good example of kind of what the general field is like. There are a lot of labor of love projects. No regulation. So, so you need someone to go out and basically immerse themselves in technology and kind of te- bring back to you and say, you know, here's how it works. Here's what works about it. Here's what doesn't work about it. Here's what it can probably accomplish. Here's what it does already accomplish. Very, you know, very fine, minute details like that. Uh, so, going into the into the 19th century, the United States is uh, obviously an independent nation at this point. The United States is a very, very complex financial system already. Um, it has gone through a couple national banks at this point, but it has a very robust um, sort of private banking sector. Mostly savings banks, some I think you would call investment institutions, but it's mostly um, uh, private individuals, larger than capital, that make up this robust financial system. And they were trying to find various ways of both developing the country, building up the country, you know, giving it what it needed services and infrastructure and um, uh, you know, products that it could actually manufacture. But didn't want to just invest anything anywhere to anyone because America in particular was a wild country. People were coming in all over the world. Uh, there were plenty of people who were shady, people you could contact here. You might go to any state, you might see them again. Uh, there were all these questions that you know, often foil um, various wealthy investors or large capital owners from investing in something uh, land speculation was one in particular that, that ruined several people. It ruined several rich people. Andrew Jackson, one of them, had he not uh, become president, probably would have died destitute because he was in the process of losing his entire fortune to uh, bad land speculation that had to do with the fact that he didn't. There weren't reliable people. He didn't know enough about uh, the land he was speculating on because he didn't have enough agents. Didn't have enough. Uh, relay information to him because he was so busy just administering this large capital accumulation didn't have time to learn the complexities of the land he might be investing for for its real value um so again by the 19th century uh, singleson makes this point that uh, about 75 percent of the 900 whaling ships worldwide were now american and there was this vast financial network that overlaid whaling and uh, likewise, there was a vast financial that had now overlaid the American textiles and uh, American ironworks. In particular, was another one that had a very, very complex under of uh, several wealthy investors who would invest in small companies at, uh, all across the country, particularly in the Northeast uh, and early Midwest, but all across the country to do various things to produce the cast iron stoves cast iron cookware produce uh, cast iron cannons to produce all kinds of cast iron um, rods bridges it was being used all over the place this cast iron pipes even starting to be utilized uh, 
So in order to, again, in order to kind of understand what it is you're investing in, are these people legit? They have, are they making some cast iron products? You would have to go out and you have to find an agent. You have to find an expert in this. Presum- preferably someone who'd worked in it before, someone who was an engineer or metallurgist, uh, or who had sprot- bought and sold cast iron, raw cast iron for a long time before it was you know, maybe put in its final form. Um, you need you just needed someone to go do this. So this relationship rose throughout the 19th century. Um, this relationship between wealthy investors and increasing uh, numbers of banks and small uh, small financial institutions sort of looking to put their money somewhere, and having someone to go analyze information back to you. Now, this is actually this is very this makes a lot of common sense to, to think everyone. You, you just have to keep in mind that this is not common practice around the world. Most of the world, even the developed nations at the time, I guess you could say, uh, did not do this, not, did not evolve this kind of um, financial system and did not evolve this professional class the way that uh, Great Britain, United States, to an extent Germany, to a slight extent Germany, had done. This was a very much unique to this sphere. Um, and why was it unique? Uh, from a cultural standpoint, it's also interesting. Nicholson has some uh, points to make about that. Mostly that there was an element in uh, England and the United States in particular that not only could you not always trust people, but you couldn't really, uh, you couldn't, really find a way to reliably contract. Everyone wanted to, to have uh, contracts. Contracts are uh, another very Anglo uh, invention that was popularized by the UK in particular. Um, but it was difficult, despite how much people liked them and wanted to use them and how advanced they become, it was difficult to actually get people to contract and you didn't want to spend time investing in the actual contractual obligations and building the contract if it turns out that you're getting swindled at the end. So there was an element of trust that was definitely built into society, but there wasn't enough. Society didn't go far enough with trust factors to allow just for, okay, yeah, you know, here's $25,000. Go ahead and set up your little test and start producing stoves for this particular region with this kind of particular element to them. Uh, it maybe can reach a new heat that have a small compartment underneath for you know, frying, baking something while you're using the stove, and all, this, all this kind of stuff. Um, so in, when we get to the, to the early 20th century, we start to get to a real kind of um, people, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century, we're getting to people that are very well-known names like Mellon uh, and Morgan. And Mellon was a particular early pioneer. Andrew Mellon, uh, of Philadelphia, I believe, a Pennsylvania-based uh, kind of oligarch or uh, a robber baron. He he was he he kind of really led the charge in this, and he created the Union Trust Company. And uh, together, they started this, this body that was sort of separate from him, it was a separate legal entity. They put money into it. And then that 
fund or that trust would then have its own organizational staff that would bring on agents that would administer itself and would find particular investment avenues for him. And because he had a stake in it, he would get, you know, a larger theory, a larger amount of his money back. In but it was this early way of sort of remove, legally removing yourself from um, problems of maybe investing directly or having to waste time on learning about something months before you actually make investment. These people handle for you. Uh, that is their job every day. It's just to worry about what to do with your money. This also kind of sets the basis for like um, money market mutual funds and things like that. A lot of them, a lot of the financial entities that we see in the post-war era, particularly in the later half of the 20th century, emerge in the 80s and 90s, take their inspiration and you know, kind of trace their roots back to this era. And a lot of the wealthy investors in the country uh, wanted to remove themselves as much as they could uh, from the day-to-day operations of investing. Because at a certain point, you make enough money, you don't want to have to administer it all day. You want to just be able to kind of do philanthropy, you want to have political interests and so on. So Andrew, Andrew Mellon was really trying to remove himself uh, from the day-to-day operations of this kind of financial um, financial entity and financial theory because no one really bought into this idea that you could just it, it was it was sort of um not commonplace to do this yet but no one really bought into this idea that you could just kind of pick a bunch of small ventures different industries too and you could remove yourself from the day-to-day um, operations of your own money and everything would be okay uh, that was that was seen as, as risky in itself and um, kind of unorthodox because uh, increasingly in the 19th century, and this is a factor of life well into the 20th century too, uh, financial institutions like banks uh, were particularly averse to lending to small ventures because, especially ventures that, were, you know, that didn't have uh, true kind of financial stability already. And were maybe trying something innovative, something new, wanted to get their product out to mass market um, from the ground up. Because of this, they didn't necessarily want to lend to them. This was in the, ni- in the 19th century. Uh, because it was the same logic later on, but because, you know, you don't, A, there's a risk factor, B, it's hard for process information because, again, there's no computer system, there's no easy way to type phones that are in wide use yet. Mass communication is not a, not a great thing. Filing and keeping paperwork is still very difficult. Um, so we're going to, just from an informational standpoint, from a management standpoint, we're not really going to do that. Later on, it becomes more about money to, especially now, to a lot of these companies because so many of them look at you know, public offerings. And so many of them get were getting absorbed. They uh, this is has always been a factor tied to the roots of venture capital. But uh, a lot of these companies would create a technology, create a product, create a service, uh, or do a project, and they might dissolve after the project. So in that case, the bank uh, doesn't have anyone to really get more loans from. So they have to go out and find another company to get loan, you know, make loans to, and get money from, and so on. 
And, you know, there was also this element of, well, they're just going to get bought up. Then we were noticing this early on. Companies would create something and a larger company would buy the rights, buy the patents, and would absorb it, use it for the purposes. And this is really the beginnings of something we talked about in uh, our episode, The Progressive Era. And uh, the real real beginnings of corporate consolidation, this idea that uh, larger and larger companies are starting to dominate their economy, they're buying assets, they're buying land, they're buying certain technologies, they're buying whole companies, smaller, or maybe competitors, or just have something to add to their vertical integration uh, or to their supply chain. So... Well, the, the one big example I can sort of cite that has ties to the New York very uh, big finance aspects of the economy was uh, the Morgan Bank's organization of the merger of Carnegie's steel operations with, I think, a, a couple others or maybe at least one other company to form U.S. Steel. And I've, I've to this uh, day, never really known of any bank doing that type of thing where they're actually actively involved in i mean i guess you could say that's like a, an early form of investment banking where you're you're working on mergers but i think morgan kind of like owned a huge amount of this this business so this was a very uh very extreme example of the other end of what today you would consider like a startup i mean this was a huge massive business that basically became you know the biggest steel company in the world and a bank was at, at the center of that, and the person who owned the bank owned a big chunk of it. Uh, so it, it's not exactly small or medium-sized business investing that uh, you know we, we would more consider. Maybe not even venture capital, more like angel investing today. But right, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really like what you call angel investing now. Um, Mellon was really the first one to kind of fuse himself of having to be the angel investor. One of the first big ones. Uh, this is a quote from the book. Like, uh, As the economy developed based on capital needs, finance increasingly divided into segments focusing on early stage risk capital, later stage private equity, and investment banking functions. Sometimes the lines between these financing segments were blurred. Thomas Edison, pioneer of the incandescent light bulb, conducted early stage experiments with capital from some of the leading financiers, best bankers at the time, including JP Morgan, his partner, Agessio Fabri, William H. Vanderbilt, Henry Villard, and others. Uh, and the, the point is that uh, the, the second kind of industrial revolution that was the beginning of this progressive era uh, that gave birth to people like Henry Ford, uh, this was really the beginnings of the, the risk capital building up the technological uh, I know technological as more of like a computer context now, but this is really the technological uh, era. Well, and, I mean, the, the best example is probably Edison and what he was right. working I mean, on yeah, at Edison, Menlo Park. Yeah, Edison and there, there was there was this element too of um, this common now, but there were hot spots uh, like Cleveland and Pittsburgh used to be the like the leading startups startup cities of uh the late 19th and early 20th century. well detroit was uh, as well that they may have actually yeah, preceded yeah. detroit um or you know maybe maybe succeeded them but th that was um 
that that was true yeah that that was kind of where all the manufacturing innovation was happening that's when the new industries were being built to built out the frontier the railroads all that stuff that was uh that was truly truly the expansionary side of the economy as opposed to the more establishment side on the east coast right and it was also the really the beginnings of mechanization you know uh can uh, smaller forms of mechanization electric uh electrical manipulation water manipulation uh high-powered steam manipulation a lot of that takes place in these startup hotspots of uh of the midwest of the, you know, like the, the old industrial rust belt i guess you could call it pennsylvania uh and a, this has almost everything to do with just this is a where the majority of the I guess you call them the money men of the era lived. They lived in the industrial Midwest, lived in Pennsylvania, they lived in New England, uh, they lived in New York. So there was an element of locationality that was also important too. Now that capital is very global and you can get capital sources uh, from anywhere, it becomes interesting that uh, you know, A, we have used to have this system where the money men of the era and some of their early capital ventures that were kind of independent of them were close by to uh, where they were investing. Uh, and you would think that as capital became global, uh, you wouldn't have that anymore. You could have anyone from any part of the country invest anywhere. But even in the modern era, and some of this has to do with you know just lack of communication technology when Silicon Valley really gets started in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but even in the modern era still, there's, there's a real trend of tying the location of your money source to the actual area where you, you perform the innovation, where you begin work on the product or the service. That's a very, I don't want to say Lindy, but it's a very, very important thing to remember. And it's part of why in Vidra's article, point is made that in order to create these innovation hubs, uh, you want private capital to go to these innovation hubs, even though it might seem paradoxical in the year 2019, you, it seems to work best when the sources of your financing are lo somewhat localized to the actual work that's going to be done with that money. That's still true that's today. Yeah, that's that's definitely a thing. Well, yeah, so Silicon Valley is, I mean, basically. Right. But not just not just Silicon Valley. You see this in other um, kind of smaller uh, hubs. Like, for instance, there's small uh, manufacturing hubs around uh, particular uh, sort of industries. Um, particularly, there's a there's a big hub in South Carolina of kind of small uh, mm. small manufacturing stuff. Well, a lot of that is automotive. I would assume maybe not South Carolina particularly but in the south there have been uh, a lot of the transplant factories been moved and that's a that's a big big industry i i, I don't right. know how but many not, you know mom and pops exist but there are some that do supply those factories and they're not owned by the major automakers so that that'd be an example i would assume yeah I mean, when, you, when you go into kind of the classical theory of the firm um there's kind of a hard distinction between investors who aren't necessarily dumb money um, but they're not the uh, they're not the idea guy or the money guy um, and then you have management 
that actually runs the firm theoretically for the benefit of those shareholders. And they have employees that, you know, it's easier to have them um, kind of inside coordinating, not being paid explicitly by task, but just sort of on retainer. And in the VC space and in economies that end up being dominated by these kinds of firms, that distinction gets really, really thin because you see instances where um, like the the role of the advisor, quote unquote, um, in Silicon Valley, which is kind of like a hybrid, you know, advisor, just kind of the plain meaning of the word, sensei, early angel investor, and kind of a minister without portfolio, where they are actually providing some classical management functions around uh, making connections with other firms, other that, suppliers. That's the primary function. I mean, it was Theranos, if we get a chance to talk about Theranos in detail, I hope we do, but Theranos had people like Jim Mattis and Henry Kissinger. Well, that's that's a whole different scheme there, I would guess. Sure, the, sure. It, it is different. Closer but, have but, firms that are actually running effectively uh, around their portfolio. Um, they're trying to get economies of scale or some sort of synergy between mm-hmm. their portfolio companies. They even have sort of like management on retainer. That's right. Yeah. They'll have yeah. they'll have a a investment company like investment that they have uh, made and they will pair drop new management. In well, that's there. what happened to Google. That's what Eric Schmidt was basically. And it was, they, they, the investors, and there were several big investors in Google, but they basically assessed the management capabilities of Sergey Brin and Larry Page as being somewhat non-existent. And so they brought in Eric Schmidt to kind of be the adult uh, in the, uh, then nascent group of young men and a few women building the company. And and he was an example of that type of manager that they bring in. These are all sort of economies of scale. It's not just enough to have, uh, well, we have a lot of capital available because we're a government, so we can fund whatever we want. And we got a lot of smart young guys because we've got a, you know, a tech university where we just call the top 1% of our uh, IQ distribution in our country or state or locality or whatever. There's this entire you know, farm team of management. There's an ecosystem of suppliers. And you have the, the VCs, like the actual capital itself, the financial capital is not as important as the, uh, the social capital that accrues in these areas. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about sort of the modern game of Silicon Valley, capital is not scarce at all. It's basically, it's, it's a hunt for people who can execute. And that's a very rare thing. Ideas are a dime a dozen. Well, I think that the the, the efflorescence of billion-dollar companies now prove that capital is not scarce. That there there is there is a never-ending amount of capital now, and that's sort of of there's a lot of that, especially when it goes public. Some of of that capital is kind of fake. Yes, Um, yes, yes. Yeah. There was a really funny. I don't. Why don't you go ahead? Then I'll I'll save my comment. I don't know if we want to jump completely into this right now. We can save some of the the discussion of the uh, the laundering aspect for later. But <laughs> um, for right now, I think it suffices to say that you've seen a explosion in activity in this very financialized VC ecosystem. Like the notion of a VC fund, where 
you know, you as a very rich guy or a family office or, uh, you know, another fund investing in funds will like actually buy shares in the VC fund or like partner in their, uh, in one of the funds that these VC firms raises that has exploded simultaneously with interest rates being at effectively 0% for what, like 15 years now. (laughs) So, well, 10 years, maybe something like that. And this has also coincided with a lot of, uh, a lot of entities that needed to have, uh, returns in order to satisfy future obligations, like particularly pension funds, endowments, like pension funds are the notorious example because their costs are very, very predictable and they need to be hitting, you know, these nominal like 15% returns or whatever, uh, just to stay afloat without soliciting more funding from the state. Hmm. So if you have government bonds yielding nothing, you have stock market, you know, it goes up and down, uh, in the long term, it's whatever, but there's no real case that the S and P is going to, you know, double over the next uh, five years. Uh, if you're left in this situation, then uh, venture capital becomes a very attractive place to park your money. And this leads to a really weird social dynamic and a very exploitable uh, dynamic that we can get into later. I was just going to make the point about uh, billions of dollars on whatever market you want to sort of pick. It It is really, for, there's two things. A market is a market capitalization of a company, if they're public or even private, is basically just the the last price of one share that was sold times the number of shares outstanding. So if I if if my company's stock market valuation is a million dollars and the average price of the share is a dollar and there's a million shares outstanding, if I sold one share to Hank for $100, so that's 100 times more than it currently is, my valuation would, in theory, go up to $100 million. That That obviously is not reality of, of like the company over one share being you know tra- transferred well, from one person to another. It's not, is not... not the reality either. I mean, fuck it. Let's just get into it now. So, <laughs> okay. So, Atom Corp is now a $100 million corporation based on the exchange of $100 worth of stock. The venture capital firm collects every year, and these are all nominal values. Yes, yeah, fees. percent yeah. of the nominal assets under management, just like their fee for holding the money, and 20% of the paper profits every year. So, holy shit, we just went from a million dollars to a hundred million dollars. I collect two million dollars. You know, that's what I'm entitled to as just my asset fee. And then a uh, fifth of $99 million. So, you know, just round that up to 20. So I can essentially take, you know, my initial million dollar investment and I can cash it out completely plus, uh, you know, a factor of, I guess, 100. And that's (laughs) so... This is all based off of the exchange of a tiny amount of money in an extremely incestuous ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, like, it take it one level deeper. I have a corp, Hank Corp. Adam has a corp, Adam Corp. 
they're both worth a million dollars. We trade one share of each for a hundred bucks. We're both hundred million dollar companies and we do the same trick of liquidating the nominal asset value and our nominal profits, cashing them out, and suddenly we're doing extremely well for ourselves as long as there's enough like physical cash to support that actual liquidation. Fortunately, since we've both demonstrated 100x returns, it's really not hard to get a shitload of people pounding down your door mm-hmm. from particular pension funds and university endowments and family offices yeah. and wealthy individuals, etc. So it starts to look a lot like a kind of pyramid scheme. And some of it is, um, it's almost, it's, it's a pyramid scheme, but it's also there is a a winner take all uh syndrome because for example like if if we're showing 100x returns we're going as a fund we're going to get some of the best entrepreneurs coming to us and so that actually does increase the the win rate of the fund itself and in effect our sort of way of winning initially perpetuates our wins later having nothing to do with our skill level it, it's just sort of you you went to the right school and then you get introduced to the right person and then you get into the right firm and and etc uh there there is that aspect to the, uh, the industry and we're making it sound very easy like oh we just trade shares i mean it's it almost is that easy when you look at things like uh the uh, the tax swindle around uh fine art um, if you have an appraiser that's on your side but if you look at the average returns of most of vc firms half of them don't actually make any money mm-hmm. not even mm-hmm. not even like oh well compared to the s p 500 we didn't do as well like they literally lose money there's yeah. only um there's only about uh i think depending on which time scale you look at um somewhere around 15 percent that show like the two to three x returns over the life cycle of one of their internal funds yeah. uh, that would justify having your money locked up for you know a decade because that's the thing so if maybe we should explain this dynamic i am i am you know hank vc you don't just give money and like buy a chunk of the venture capital firm the venture capital firm is like vanguard you don't buy f- like shares of vanguard incorporated when you buy a Vanguard fund, you give money for them to invest. So every year, every couple year, depending, I start a new fund, Hank Fund 1, Hank Fund 2, Hank Fund 3. And each of them, I raise a substantial amount of money and I invest that particular fund in something or another, a portfolio of companies over the next like, you know, two, three, four, however many years. And then at the end of the fund life cycle, you know, 10 years usually um, with weird variations lately, like often it's uh, kind of automatically extended to 13 years. There's an option to extend it to 15 years, whatever. At the end of some time period, say, okay, pencils down, game over, and everybody gets uh, whatever, um, whatever the investments can be liquidated for. So your money, it's, it's not like Vanguard. You can't just go to the, uh, go to the fund and be like, Hey, you know, 
got a bad feeling about this. I'd like to take my money out. It's it's sort of locked up. Well, yeah, the liquidity of venture investments is notoriously low compared to the stock market. I mean, obviously, and it's it's probably worse than private equity in, in many ways because they're not trading in established proven businesses. They're trading in promises to be potential businesses, big businesses usually, but it's, it's not, um, it's a venture. It's, it's a speculative venture. So right. they're not able to very easily exit. And the, the ultimate exits for VCs always come in one of two ways. As far as I know, it's basically an IPO, so selling shares in the public stock market, or it's acquired by a big company like Google or Microsoft. That's and that's actually been more of the trend in the past uh, twenty years, yeah. frankly, since the dot com bubble. Yeah. It's been more, you know, acquisitions versus and because IPOs. Because of that, because of that pattern, so there's almost no uh, room for something that um, is just sort of like intermittent. Or it's like consistently mildly profitable. Like there's some size of a market, we're going to get half that market. It's going to output a certain amount of dollars every year that we return to shareholders. What you end up seeing is that there's really only two kinds of companies that end up getting funded by um, Silicon Valley VCs. It's product development for a established, um, already very large public company. So, you know, you've got some uh like god i don't even know what the trends are now um but uh you know you sprinkle some ai sauce on some prod product and the idea is that eventually somebody or another is going to recognize that this is valuable for the things that actually make money mm-hmm. uh and buy it up even though the thing itself doesn't make any money at all I mean, it's fascinating how much of a herd mentality there seems to be at least in silicon valley style venture funding uh there was um I'll, I'll put a link to it if i can find it on youtube but it was uh, i remember watching this uh, years ago and it was uh robert scoble who used to uh do kind of these vlogs like video blogs uh, of microsoft he got pretty famous doing that and then he was doing kind of just this freelance stuff for a while in silicon valley and he interviewed um, one of the product managers from Facebook who became a venture capitalist. His name is Chamath uh, Palihapitiya, I believe I pronounced that somewhat right. Uh, very smart guy, uh, very successful, uh, and he's a venture capitalist now. And basically he was just bemoaning how stupid the investments have become in Silicon Valley compared to back when they would do things like computing and genetic engineering. Oh, well, they've come full circle on that because the other sector that they invest in now is business to business stuff. Well, that, yeah, that's always been there, but it's, um, it's gotten more prominent with Salesforce kind of leading the way, but it was, um, it was basically his statistic was, you know, he asked Scoble, like, do you know how many photo sharing companies were invested in? And this was again, several years ago, but last year or whatever, you know, the, the time frame was, and it was something like, I, I want to say a thousand, but that, that even sounds absurd to me, but I, I would not be shocked if that's true, but it was at least a hundred photo yeah. sharing. Well, that, photo that's, sharing. that's the same. That's the same pattern of uh, what they're really building isn't, it's not like they're constructing a steel foundry and then at the end they're going to like sell the steel foundry. They're, it's like the, uh, we're putting together a team. They're, they're demonstrating the ability to get a bunch of guys to a place and work together and build a thing. 
And so well, in this analogy that the steel foundry is already there, we're just getting together a team to go make a particular kind of I-beam. Right. And yeah. we're going to have a hundred different teams doing different kinds of new kinds of I-beams, but all the infrastructure and all the technical tools and the products to, to build that, it's already there. A lot of it's free. Well, that's, that's the dirty little secret. Like yeah. the, the tooling, like if you want a tool to do a certain thing, like, it already exists. Like all this stuff is built, but the integration effort and like the product AB testing, everything is, everything is integration overhead. That's, that's the entirety of all technical problems now, almost. Well, that's why Facebook became successful versus MySpace. I mean, it was the same thing, but it was just executed and you can call it integration. You can call it whatever marketing, but th- there is something to having that team that knows how to do it, whatever that is. And that's typically what VCs are looking for. Because as we're talking about foundries versus photo sharing, I mean, there's no physical plant anymore. There's no capital to repo for the bank. It's basically just, are these guys good at what they do or not? And if they are, I mean, VCs climb over themselves to basically fund these guys because they're they're one in the million. It's not the capital again. It's basically the people who know how to crack the code of getting people to download whatever it is and get that thing to a billion users. Uh, and it's uh, it's really a, they they call it a power law, but basically the returns for most of these investments are very low or a fat tail, whatever you want to say. But it's the same thing. It's basically the, the, the home runs, they're, they're more extraordinary than home runs because home runs statistically probably happen, I don't know, once every 100 hits or something. I mean, it's like it's even worse uh, in venture capital, but the returns for those few companies are astounding. There was a, a statistic I read about Excel partners, and they basically made like a 1,000 times return on their investment in Facebook. And all their other investments, even though a couple of them were somewhat notable, like you had heard of the company, meaningless didn't matter didn't matter uh, yeah well if you want to feel for kind of what's actually um being funded and how these weird uh trends also kind of pop up like obviously you can't get a photo sharing startup funded now unless you've got some sort of absurd spin on it um but look at so there, there's also the notion of an accelerator which is kind of a mini VC fund almost they they make very small grants mostly it's a kind of a pedigree endorsements that gives you access to uh, certain uh, resources and subsequent well, there's uh, also, funding there's, but there, there's so a, look, look at the look at the companies that are funded by Y Combinator each year which is a there's a bunch of people that aggregate that list and that lets you kind of see um, what's uh, what's being funded. Well, I was going to say that there was this trend of it's kind of died a little bit there, especially in the 2000s. There was this beginning of what was being called corporate venture capital. A lot of <laughs> established corporations like, <sighs> like Microsoft were. Well, there was a lot of cringy only, like entrepreneur videos oh, on like oh. TED and like, oh, you can you can be an entrepreneur inside IBM. Like, no, no, <laughs> there was can't. also a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, capital. There was uh, Intel saying that ah, oh, we're going to invest a billion dollars in like whammon businesses or whatever. <laughs> Like, I don't know how much of it got dispersed. So, you're talking about accelerators so much cash. <laughs> and providing a lot of 
tools. I mean, so, you know, there, there has been this trend and it's kind of ebbed and flowed. It hasn't worked out it on it because it is easier for them to not completely overbear on a lot of these, um, a lot of these startups and, and just buy them up later, let someone else do the work of funding and managing them. Um, but there was this trend of trying to build in-house accelerators and it, and it is as sleazy as you can imagine. And it's basically, you know, what you build is you're, you're kind of an entrepreneur, but we kind of give you these guidelines and we tell you, here's the tools and here's what we're looking for. And here's when we like to see it. And here's the deadline, but you're totally, this is, this is, this is a startup. Oh, and also you just get your salary, right? It's a startup on a deadline with a salary. So then it's like, Oh, so this is just, an in-house project and I'm a contractor. Yeah. That's basically what it was. It was, you know, glorified contracting with this veneer of startup ship of entrepreneurship, which is I think that veneer of entrepreneurship is really what motivates a lot of people to do a lot of this stuff. To have that sensation that you are an underdog, that you're at the cutting edge, you're on your own, and you're kind of you're you're bleeding on the finger on the keyboard and you're trying to get that VC money and you're working your ass off. Like those feelings motivate me. You know, that's part I that's at least at least 70% of what's motivating to do to go into this, especially now in modern tech sphere or biopharmaceuticals, so on. But uh, if you go and you look back in history, particularly with um, people like Fairchild Semiconductors and all the guys that left Robert Shaw and left Shock at the end, beginnings of Palo Alto, that, that same sensation was there, that idea like, we're just going to go out on our own. We've made our money. We're all good at what we do. Like, let's let's actually struggle for once. Let's try and do something on our own, and maybe it'll pay off. But it was this feeling of, let's make something of ourselves, try and make a name for ourselves, have to be challenged and not be a part of a larger company. And I think that larger companies just didn't understand that when they started putting out these corporate accelerators, these in-house accelerators. And it also was just as ridiculous as basically saying, you're a contractor. This is a contract. This is a project. And we're just telling you you're an entrepreneur. You're an in-house entrepreneur. Uh, but you don't get to work in our R&D staff. You're just a contractor. Well, it, it is interesting to see how companies who are rated as being very innovative do get things like this accomplished. I mean, back in the day when Google was still pretty fresh off the block, they had this thing called a 20% time, and it was basically every Friday you could do whatever you want. And that's, <laughs> I think, been that hacked exist. to pieces, and I don't even know if it ever did exist, but they had some credible claim to being somewhat relatively there were, there, speaking, yeah, innovative. Like the early days of Facebook, there were claims of hackathons. Like they do right. hackathons every Friday oh, night Jesus. or every Saturday night, and they would hack for twenty four hours. And you were, you always wonder, like, hey, what are you actually doing? But yeah, well, I, I can tell you exactly what you're doing. You're putting a you're putting a UI skin on something <laughs> that. Exist. <laughs> really you're adding exist. widgets it's like okay so any company of significant scale like okay take facebook there are a dozen different things there that it costs them millions of dollars a year to run like this little thing and it's like oh well you know i spent my 24 hours optimizing this thing and looking at the distribution of requests 
and uh, putting in a couple of uh, caching layers and figuring out when to skip the cache. And anyway, I saved half a percentage of uh, time on uh, half of the uh, requests. So that uh, that should net us about a uh, hundred grand a year. It's like, okay, cool, but like, but where's your demo for the demo? Like, are you going to do a demo for the hackathon? Are you going to demo your project? Well, there's been various people attributed to this quote, but it it's basically goes like this. You know, the, the smartest people of my generation have been dumped into figuring out how to make the masses click 1% more on a link. Well, I mean, that would that would be better than the average, like far better than the average, uh, you know, we, we wrapped our, uh, we put like a new CSS skin on like some <laughs> bullshit. Well, the whole the whole app explosion too it actually never really made any sense to me because it's like well they're taking existing web pages and putting like big duplo buttons on it on a phone but there's nothing new other than you can walk down the street and like log into a web page yeah. somewhat uh, quicker access to device functionality with all right you function, get gps uh, and a camera but like what else are you yeah. getting it's you know okay well, there, there's there you know remember like, foursquare gps you know. and a camera and a uh, accelerometer and uh right you know pretty soon you got yourself a, a killbot Right, I stand corrected. That web page, I stand corrected. Well, the okay. So Hans, you were you were kind of doing more historical stuff. Do you want to maybe yeah, you guys finish that show. up? I gotta go. Well, back. we we had nothing to say, so we were waiting patiently, and then we got a chance. So. Waiting patiently, you two were having a whole conversation. I just kind of sat here, <laughs> sitting in the in the cuck corner as my show got cucked. Our but, show, Hans. There is uh, no I. Our yeah, our show. We're all general partners here. Okay. <laughs> We've all invested equally. No limited partners allowed. It's no liquidity preference here. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a point made earlier about you know like the wealth. There's a lot of these wealthy investors. So uh, and by the way, I realized that I was saying Nicholson. I think a few times it's Tom Nichols. Tom Nichols. Nicholson is just a freaking slip. Uh, we miss you, Alex. So anyways, um, there was a point made earlier about wealthy investors. And it turns out that a lot of modern venture capital, particularly modern, modern venture capital, especially after World War II, is just basically uh, wealthy investors with a new skin. Uh, and a lot of old money really gets involved early on. This this becomes a very waspy industry, uh, kind of funnily enough, as a lot of the uh, yeah. T Tim Tim Draper is probably like the most modern like personification <laughs> of that. Oh god, that guy. <laughs> well, so uh, back when uh, uh, was it? Valleywag. Uh, Valleywag was still around. Uh, that was uh, Gawker's uh, Silicon Valley version, by the way, for people not familiar. But it was. Uh, it was so funny how they described him. They called him an overgrown uh, frat boy, and th this is this is this was like the type that would basically fund like Apple, and they don't exist that much anymore. But I just wanted to sort of paint the picture for what that looks like. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you, it's funny as as a lot of the financial industry basically got Jude. In, especially in the 70s and 80s, that this particular industry like is the most preeminent wasps only kind of thing. 
Um, and I had a lot to do, especially as it became more prominent in California. There's the population of California, which was a, still a very wasp state. Um, even well into like the 90s, uh, this was this is an industry that was almost the same kind of people that you know were involved in the early kind of adventure capitalism and early investments of colonial America, or you know those lineages are still doing this out in California. Um, so Nicholas says this point: uh, the scale of wealth accumulation associated with U.S. economic growth from the late 19th century onward and generational planning often called for a more formalized and disciplined structure. Uh, and then he says, you know, furthermore, modern venture capital firms can be directed by families. Venrock, uh, which we'll later, was founded in 1969 by Lawrence Rockefeller, the grandchild of oil magnate Judy Rockefeller, another prominent modern example of E.C. firm Bessemer Venture Event. Bessemer Venture Partners, founded in 1981, was spun off from a family office created by Steel Magnetics, who, who had generated enormous wealth through its association with the industrial type in Carnegie. Uh, and there were also, uh, you know, a lot of like kind of prominent corporations that were involved at the time. But they're again, you know, still very prominent, but sort of under the radar kind of family groups. Uh, so, notably, J. H. Whitney and Company uh, is, is basically closely tied with a lot of um, groups and entities that were formed by formed by entities that were associated with like Union Trust Company and a lot of stuff that was uh, tied back to Mellon. So there were several generations and several iterations of these funds that would pass into funds. And we're all basically tracing themselves uh, a lot of their a lot of their own startup capital back to some of the early venture funds, if you want to call them that, of uh, of unlimited partnerships, of or general partnerships of uh, the late nineteenth and early twentieth century United States. So there was this even to this day. There's there's a ton of old money that is you know that has circulated around that has helped build up the modern kind of information sphere in silicon valley um and that has you know really given rise to a lot of the modern vcs and built it built it as its own industry basically uh it was is very much this intergenerational chaining effect uh that is kind of peculiar because typically you know we'll see a company kind of uh, come up and it'll have sources of money and it'll build its own capital. And, you know, like GE is a good example. And then over time, it'll die out. Companies over time die out or they get broken up or whatever, but they kind of die on their own. And then the traces of them are found in other areas. Maybe these assets were purchased by another company and they were used uh, for 20 years and turned into something else and so on. Uh, but it's rare that you see this kind of financial chaining effect because. Most of the, especially now because of consolidation in the banking sphere, most of the credit unions and banks that we have, uh, commercial and lending banks, investment banks, uh, don't really have this kind of structure. A lot of them have been around forever. Some of them have been around for more than 100 years. Most of them have created what, whatever other banks there are to this day, or they partially own them. Uh, it is very much a consolidated sphere that hasn't really changed drastically. Uh, VCs have, have, have changed very drastically, very constantly, but the constant thing has always been that they can easily trace their lineage 
and trace their functions back to older and older generations of VC firms. You can think of it as almost passing on traditions and passing on capital with traditions on how to manage this kind of portfolio, this risk capital portfolio system, how to manage um, you know, agent interactions, how to invest properly, how to determine what makes a good company, practices on how to deploy management if necessary, like guys like Eric Schmidt, that goes back a very long ways, that particular practice. So there's a real tradition here almost that kind of makes up the modern VC sphere. Uh, and Peter Thiel has actually spoken, you know, probably the most famous, I would say, uh, venture capital and angel investor guy of, of our time. Um, you know, he he has spoken about this several times that, uh, you know, he he really has learned a lot of what he's learned and uh, kind of took a lot of advice from generations of people who had done this that he he said once, like, all these guys were dead when I was learning their advice. I, you know, I just kind of read about them. I read about what they did. I studied what they did and I just applied it in the modern sphere and it was almost no different. You had, you had that same kind of fundamental uh, pragmatism that underlies the VC business with a certain amount of risk and, and kind of luck associated with it. You will, well, you will get stable results, um, which is a thing that was not often categorized about VCs is that they're always regarded as unstable, uh, very unstable. There is a period in the 70s to the 90s. Uh, there's actually there were several papers that I found that were written about the fall of, of the venture capital industry, death of the venture capital industry, the rise and fall of the venture capital industry. And they were all written in the mid 90s. What's interesting is that <laughs> they were completely wrong, obviously, it turns out. But um, they, that, that seems like a very strange time to write that because the dot com bubble was, well, was I mean, that was the thing even they, more all this, insane. All these than, academics had written these papers literally just before. Well, ninety four was kind of when it kicked off with Netscape, um, basically, kind of creating the internet craze, and uh, yeah, I mean academics are usually decades, if not more behind the times. So yeah, maybe that's that's believable. Well, but they weren't totally wrong. So. Uh, and this is kind of jumping the gun, but it's interesting in that in, in the 70s in particular, you know, there were a lot of financial phenomena going on in the United States. We talked about this in our savings and loan crisis episode. That, um, people shied away from private investment. And there was, again, a kind of a trend of firm consolidation. Private businesses were having trouble getting lines of credit, having trouble attracting investment. There were some supply-side machinations that were performed that didn't have their effect, uh, intended effects on many years later, sometimes a decade or two later, uh, from a financial policy standpoint, because by this point in this country, we had you know financial policy at the federal level, at the state level, the municipal level. We have you know various laws and regulations and, and, and manipulations of the market by the government to try and spur different kinds of investment and work. Um, so anyways, you know, the, the financial sector is, is going through kind of a, a weird period where people were preferring, you know, uh, government bonds, people were preferring, you know, established companies in the stock market, people were preferring mutual funds like that, um, that had, were very stable, not very risky, uh, it was very clear cut. And there was also a wide amount of investment given towards, um, uh, obviously, pensions. Pensions used to be much more important and much large, much relatively larger 
and had much more stable and people would give money to their credit money to their credit union and so on so vcs kind of started to die and obviously they they had trouble attracting investment now this didn't really slow the pace of innovation there's still plenty of innovation going on government level uh, still in silicon valley and in and various kind of uh, uh, hubs around the country boston was another continued to be another one uh, austin in parts of texas houston and austin and dallas have always had you know technical innovation that it's always been very good um, and it was pretty consistent throughout this period throughout the 80s but People moved away from VCs and they were considered kind of a dead industry, uh, like an industry that never really even got off the ground was their was the prognosis uh, in a lot of these papers. And obviously it turns out totally wrong because a year or two after a lot of these papers get written, we have the beginnings of the internet become widely used and personal computing and, and uh the efflorescence of communication networks and now you know we're, we're laying fiber everywhere we're, we're laying pipes everywhere we're, we're build out internet infrastructure passing the telecommunications act and all this stuff so all you know now vcs have we're always kind of had a niche uh grasp on this particular field of technology and computer technology and they were the first call for a lot of large institutional investors. When they realized this is going to be the next big thing, this is going to change the country the way the same way that railroads did, same way the telegraphs did, same way that mechanization did. Um, you know, who do we go to? Well, they didn't have agents anymore. They didn't have this weird kind of formless agent system. Now they had venture capital firms. And they just all happen to be based in places like California and places like Texas, parts of the Northeast where all this work was being done. And they were the first call. They were the first, you know, destination for money and their rate of return and their total investment in their total portfolios exploded after about six. Well, you mentioned and, um, the East Coast a little bit, and this is always something that I pondered, and I'm not the only person to wonder this, but, you know, the... The Harvard MIT hub is very comparable to the Stanford Berkeley hub in Silicon Valley. Yet the and actually some of the original computing companies that were sort of breaking into the the market after IBM sort of took over, like Digital Equipment Corporation, were based in Boston. But Boston never really got the the true venture spirit as they did on the west coast i've always wondered why i don't know if you're because uh, boston or... turned into a shithole city and um no one wanted to live there no one wanted to go work there yeah and it had to do and it had part of it had to do with the fact that um a lot of the semiconductor uh which was, became the large very important field and things like bell labs became much more heavily and heavily invested in just parts of California, just due to the fact that there were a lot of people who were there, who mm. were moving there, that had experience in this field. Yeah, uh, better weather. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the, the lifestyle of living in California. If you, and if you look into Steve Blank's, uh, mm -hmm. his name, Steve Blank, the secret, you know, secrets of Silicon Valley, and yeah, the secret history of Silicon Valley. And you can amount, and there's a he does a like a one hour presentation. Right. Well, he he basically said it was the military industrial complex, but. 
Yeah, that was the other half. But there, there are other takes to it. Like Paul Graham talks about basically what you're saying is like it's just smart people want to or hackers is his big thing. Like hackers want to live in interesting places, and so it usually has kind of that uh, well, counterculture, I mean, artistic. By the bent. '60s, by the '60s, Boston fucking sucked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I know didn't they have like race riots yeah, or something? Brutal winters with the prospect of race war. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why you would live there. Why, if you were like into high tech and you got well paid and you're a smart guy, why would you want to live anywhere in Boston? I don't know. There's like good good antique stores there. I heard. I'm kidding, but uh, yeah, it's a cool place. I I, I agree. It's it's not obviously Bel Air, but uh, there is also like there is an element of state policy around it california at the time that silicon valley was growing was a much more uh, kind of quote-unquote pro-growth environment particularly the fact that they disallow non-competes has been huge over the decades i believe they are uh very enforceable in uh in washington in uh massachusetts but the fact that your employer can't prevent you from jumping ship to a competitor in California, it it does help with the propagation of uh, of ideas and kind of the flow of talented individuals to where they can be best utilized. Right, and you know, speaking of Boston, so after the after the post after World War II, we had all this great tech. We had Pioneer during the war, for the war. Now it's all want to commercialize it. So. Uh, the federal government and a lot of policy wonks at the time were kind of getting worried because it looked like this early burgeoning field of startup finance or risk capital, modern risk capital was kind of already done. Um, commercial banks weren't deploying risk capital um, in a, like a really systematic way, and they were offering no management guidance, I guess you could say. Like, that just wasn't their field of expertise, and they weren't interested in doing it. Um, and especially to high tech firms or to new to firms specializing in chemical synthesis in any you know, very early computer technology in electronics and semiconductor technology fabrication all that just they had no fucking clue what they were what they were doing or how any of it worked and um, so you had like life insurance companies investment trusts other institutional investors had like there was a ton of money. There's so much capital waiting to be deployed, they couldn't do it. So uh, the government, not the government per se, but let's call them political interests, business elites, academics in New England, actually created what is sometimes thought as the first seed, uh, the American Research Development Corporation, also just called ARD or ARDC, uh, in Boston in 1946 is based in the middle of the financial district of Boston. And the basic premise was we're going to take institutional capital and we're going to boost regional development. So it was intended to boost regional development, New England high-tech development, Massachusetts-based high-tech development. And the basic premise was, hey, we got MIT here, we got Harvard here, we have all these great uh, universities nearby, we have a lot of great companies here that do a lot of innovative work. We have engineering firms uh there's a lot of smart people there's a lot of skilled manufacturing labor skilled service labor in new england let's combine it all put it all to work and see what happens just got to get it money 
we have to have some guys who are domain experts, is what they started being called. And they started hiring people out of MIT, or not even out of MIT, people who had been trained in MIT, uh, who you know, had become professional engineers, maybe they worked uh, for a, a war office during World War II or maybe they didn't, but they were brought in and basically said, okay, said to them, you know, you're going to work with lawyers. And together, you're going to figure out uh, you know, good companies to go invest in. You're going to see what their technology is like, write proposals on it. Lawyers are going to try and find a way to structure our investment, try and find a way to structure the company. And that's going to be our our business plan. That was the business plan for ARD, basically. And it worked for a while. And it really it kicked off a lot of really cool firms doing a lot of cool stuff. Um and they were actually the first big investors in digital equipment or DEC. And that was really the beginning in a lot of ways of like mini computing, personal computing, uh, kind of takes a lot of its origin from that early company and that early investment. Uh, so there was a time when Boston might have become the tech capital of the country or one of the tech capitals but for various social factors and for the fact that semiconductor fabrication was being set up predominantly inside California and on the West Coast and there was already a huge amount of aerospace engineering that's already taking place on the West Coast and, and some chemical processing and, and chemical engineering it became an attractive place to base venture capital as well so you had the early beginnings of people like Arthur Rock or you know, and Arthur Rock and these early venture capital kind of guys who a lot of whom were not tied to an elite family or something. They just had, they knew a guy who knew a guy who could, you know, get us in contact with an institutional investor or a fund and maybe get us some money. Is he the guy that fired Steve Jobs? I think so. He's the same Arthur Rock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, technically it wasn't him. It was his, uh, who was the CEO of Apple or, uh, like the, it's jobs. No, 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 no. Well, the president, or there was a guy from, who was the guy from Pepsi? Who was oh, that Apple? guy, John Scully. John Scully. That idiot. John oh, God. Right. Okay. But it was because his board was telling him to, and I think it was Rock that basically just had enough of Steve Jobs' yeah, antics. Yeah, I mean, everyone hated Steve in the end. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Everyone hated him, but at that time. But it was, I think it was Scully who pulled the trigger. And yeah. Fired. Yeah. yeah. The the funny thing about that story is that uh, Jobs actually recruited Scully <laughs> to come run the company. For no, him. yeah, no. Uh, it was actually a terrible decision. <laughs> I mean, not even just for himself, but for the company. I mean, oh yeah, he, basically, he was, complete, uh, he was a complete flop. Like there he was didn't know, a, a really funny he was analogy. Know what the fuck he was doing? Well, no, there was a funny analogy made between uh, him and Bill Gates, and because obviously Microsoft destroyed Apple in the like late eighties, nineties. Uh, to the point where they ended up buying a big chunk of it, uh, actually under Jobs' advice because they were so desperate for cash. But uh, and this was after Jobs came in to like try to save the company because they were that desperate. But basically, it was uh, it was like John Scully uh, was like a a minnow going up against an organized uh, carrier battle group uh, out of Redmond because the guy just did not know anything about computers. I mean, it was the famous line that Jobs apparently 
used to uh, to hire him. It's like, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want to come change the world? That's what convinced Scully apparently to join Apple. But uh, clueless, completely clueless. Yeah. Actually, in that stupid Aaron Sorkin movie uh, about Steve Jobs, where I didn't like that one. Yeah, Pirates of Silicon Valley was much better. But yeah, uh, he comes off as like a complete psychopath. But um, he's like uh, he's like Patrick Bateman in that movie. But anyways, (laughs) there's a scene where he basically I don't know if this happened. It probably didn't. But he basically dresses down John Scully like to his very fibers and well the jobs would do stuff like that no that that's and, not out of character at all i mean he, he yeah, was he, he was a prick yeah he basically like the the core of it was you know like go fuck yourself old man like you don't know anything i'm you know i'm the only reason that you even have a job right now and you know completely kind of demolished his whole ego because he you know it was there was this there's this trend and it is part of the modern bc sphere in particular of um, cutthroatness. People in the Bay Area in particular are cutthroat. And it's not in the way that you think. It's not in like the old Machiavellian or Wall Street kind of Gordon Gecko cutthroatness. There, that exists. There's an element of it that is just personal. There's, a, there's an element of it that is about personally dressing down some, not like fucking over. Well, you're 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 onto something there. There is an intellectual yeah. elitism that, right. uh, in, in particular, in the the sort of old school Silicon. I mean, the political correctness has kind of ruined this with all the you know, uh, Elizabeth Holmes is the the first woman billionaire kind of crap that has basically just clouded everything. But before that, it was um, it was truly a intellectual horsepower jock fest. And and Bill Gates was also like this too at Microsoft. If you read about what he was like to work with, he would basically basically dress you down, and he would he would just call you. That's the stupidest thing I have ever heard. And it was it was so unlike kind of the again like the East Coast, you know, wear the suit and tie to work. It's all about being cool or slick, kind of like Don Draper or something. No, it was like, dude, man, I, I've got uh, I've got shorts on and a t-shirt, and I'm going to intellectually pummel you because you are a frigging moron, and I'm going to prove it. And that that did not exist in corporate America, and that that became kind of the dynamic up until probably the early 2000s when things got incredibly paused, for lack of a you know more yeah. eloquent term. But it's um, yeah, that that's the tradition of Silicon Valley. And we're talking about, you know, artsy over in Boston. So in in uh, in California, in Palo Alto, in 1959, we get really the first real venture, like modern venture capital limited partnership that is not tied to the government. Like, uh, it wasn't created by like political and political and academic interests. And it was just sort of formed by people who wanted to make money. Uh, it's called DGA. And, and uh it, it was the same kind of premise, you know, you pool capital from sources that were kind of from the people who ran the firm. Uh, and it was a totally intermediary entity. And uh, you can listen to some of the names of the guys like Will, William Draper, who was I believe, the, the father of Tim, the modern Tim Draper. Yeah, related. yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, William Draper, William H. Draper Jr., H. Rowan Geither, 
Frederick L. Anderson and Lawrence G. Durig. There's no <laughs> man, that it, doesn't echo. It, 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 it does not echo at all, and it is continuing to this day. If you look at most general partners, if you, like your average VC firm, you're not going to. You still don't see a lot of that going on. It's it's kind of it's kind of funny. Um, it's also kind of, <laughs> it's a very mad man, uh, mad men-esque uh, experience. Oh, yeah, if you actually walk in through the door of one of these places for a meeting, it's like, oh yes, one of the office girls will uh, will fetch you a Diet Coke. <laughs> like, oh cool, you got office girls still. Right, That's well nice. it, it's kind of like a Mad Men for the 21st century because they're, they're sort of business attire. It's still not the full suit, but they'll have like the sweater vest and the collared shirt, and then they're expecting to be talking. Yeah, they're, they're to these... letting you, you know, it's not we're not squares like those other guys, right? But, exactly. Uh, you know, exactly. we keep it together. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So like Gucci sweatpants and uh, ten thousand dollar watch uh, type ethos. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in 1958, you know, we start really seeing the government. And this is again back to the build your capital state. We start seeing the government do things on the supply side to build up this, this sphere because it's starting to seem effective. Artsy's working. We're starting seeing some of the beginnings of this in California. could be lucrative and it could really accelerate a lot of our technical products, you know, commercial market and get to the patient uh, that is not uh, taxpayer-based. So they pass the Small Business Investment Act and they, they start giving private investment tax breaks to invest. Uh, and this is unique because before you know, it was odd that you would give a tax break to companies specifically focused on putting their money elsewhere. Um, but this was uh, it was a big it was actually a risk in itself to do this because it could have been mishap uh, had it not been you know perceived the way it did. But this. This kind of leads to the creation of what we call professionally managed VC firms, and they start like licensing private small business investment companies or SPICs to get entrepreneurs' capital and also tell them how to structure their company and how to build up the cap, how to build up the company, how to manage the product development. So we started seeing domain experts kind of working with the government at large at the federal level to build up these regions of the country that had talent pools or were desirable to go to, they could foreseeably uh, deliver something to the market. And then the sixties and seventies, you know, again, there, there's, there's, like, there's hundreds of the, these SBICs now. And uh, there are companies that we start to know today that kind of get funneled through them. Xerox, Intel, American Microsystems, several others that really become a product of a mix of kind of government intervention to the market and propping it up, and the you know the the rise of the professional VC firm, the rise of the professional tech expert, an engineering expert who worked on behalf of the VCs or was just a general partner at the VC firm, and because of this. Now there's a real uh, template for if you want to build a VC, you want to get into this. Now you know how to structure it. Now you know how to structure the VC itself because there's success 
stories to look at. And they've built successful companies. So there you, this is when you see the efflorescence of VCs really starting in the 70s, because now people know kind of what works, what doesn't work. And here's how we base a company around that idea. As long as we can attract money either through connections or uh, through existing capital sources, uh, if, as long as we can get the money, we know what to do or the structure, we just have to go out and find companies to actually give it to. Uh, and in 1979, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act uh, made it even more possible to start pouring money into venture capital. So uh, prior to 1979, pension funds were really limited by ERISA uh, and the amount of money they could put in high-risk assets and included the whole And then in 1979, we changed that so they could invest up to 10% of funds. So now there's this massive capital source that you're used to actually utilize. And there'd be similar pieces of legislation that would come out uh, after that that would start to provide the money that people wanted for certain things. And that leads us directly into the 90s, which is when we get, uh, you know, again, the, like the new beginnings of Intel. Intel kind of uh, died, almost died in the 80s. Intel kind of resurfaces PCs and other private sources of capital. In the 90s, we get Compaq, we get McAfee, we get Hotmail. Not Hotmail yet, but we, we start to see like beginnings of uh, a real burgeoning IT sphere, different subfields. Semiconductor production. We have security. We have hardware production. We have software production. We have management software. You know, like we're seeing a real um, diversity. If you want to use that word in the sector itself because there's so much capital and there's so many guys who are working day in day out to understand the industry and find companies and people with just ideas. Um, to actually lend money to and see if it can actually work. And this creates this interesting feedback because as more software and hardware gets developed due to innovation, there's more tools and there's more availability for more people to get into the industry and do things. Um, and this was the intended effect. Again, going back to the building the venture capital state, this was always the intended effect, create a feedback. It was just a matter of how do you actually get that feedback working to begin with? How do you create that mechanism? Ended up just being mostly supply side economics that worked best and sort of freeing up capital and allowing sort of you know some amount of risky portfolio management to become part of daily American financial life. That was able to create this massive um, technical sphere that we have in the United States today. Um, outside of defense contractors, large engineering firms, you know, Honeywell is even Baker Hughes on Halliburton. Um, and, and especially now, like the, there, there are companies, there are com tech companies that become institutions in themselves: Microsoft, IBM, Cisco, uh, Apple, Facebook, uh, Google, and, and so on. Uh, we're, we're still kind of looking at that feedback loop, but we're, we're looking in new directions to go. And typically, as we talked about before, with corporate venture capital, the majority of the innovation that was done in another era preceding us it was done by large companies. Increasingly, though, large companies are very much reliant still on this ever 
increasing feedback loop to see the newest possible ways of working with the technology or a new field of technology um, because it's the most effective means of actually allowing people to craft a product or craft a service and not have a lot of overhead structure, not have a lot of bureaucracy. Um, it's something that is also very difficult from a cultural standpoint for countries to replicate. There's a, there's a deep cultural history in the United States of being free to develop your product the way you choose to develop it, uh, having the tool sets at an affordable cost in order to develop it because they've already been commercialized and they've already hit mass market very quickly. Uh, mass market dispersion of commercial products isn't something that the United States has excelled at for at least 150 years, if not longer. Um, and that's, that really allows people to quickly and affordably get materials and get equipment together and talent together to build something. Um, a lot of this would not have been possible without a very structure being laid by, ironically, the robber baron era, mostly. Um, people who were bemoaned at the time as being kind of um, greedy and not caring about building up the country, uh, their early pioneering efforts and their their kind of big picture strategy, which they saw a lot of this early on as being possible, is the reason we have all the technology we have now. I think that the greatest takeaway you can uh, take from you know, the history of venture capital really is that no uh, high-tech revolution and no continuing innovation is, is possible without consistent and reliable sources of you know, expert capital, not just money, but expert capital that is uh, led by smart people who know what kind of money that they actually want to make, how to disperse it properly, and what to look for in, in a product. It's very rare for a company or a country to figure that out. I think Americans should be kind of proud that we've cracked that code as much as we have. Um, but it, you know, as, as we go forward and we see all these attempts in the world to recreate the magic of Silicon Valley and recreate the magic of, of 20th century American capitalism, I think a lot of places are going to be uh, very short-changed because they're not going to have that underlying basis that we well, if, if I could talk about sort of the philosophy of what Silicon Valley represents to the United States, it's sort of a double-edged sword the way I look at it. The, um, the globalization wave that kind of swept the country after, let's just say, the Vietnam War, where financialization took hold and a lot of the industrial policy decisions were basically geared around what Wall Street wanted – and that meant a strong dollar, uh, which hurts manufacturing. And you ended up seeing through kind of some of the policies of the empire with regard to strategic allies like Germany and Japan with their automotive and machinery industries basically displacing a lot of the manufacturing in the United States. Uh, the Silicon Valley computer revolution and other technology types of uh, innovations were was sort of seen as the way forward for the United States. We're going to lose basically the middle ground. We're going to keep the low tech agriculture stuff because it's just such a good piece of land, but we're going to basically lose the middle tech factory manufacturing work with your hand type of stuff. And we're going to focus on the high tech. And this is why all these people have been 
basically sold the lie that if they go to university, they're going to be able to reach that upper echelon of the human stratosphere or strata that contains the elite, the intellectual elite, and all you need is an education. Well, that's not really true if you look at what happens in Silicon Valley. And, and Elon Musk has gone so far as to say, like, I don't give a damn about your degree. Are you smart? I mean, if you look at a lot of the big companies that have been successful startups to you know big companies, they're led by dropouts. So the, the education promise to the masses hasn't worked. Uh, however, there have been some incredible innovations or at least companies built out of this system, but it's been very skewed towards the, the top. And so that is sort of what I think we've, we've missed out on is that sort of middle class that used to be the bedrock of the country uh, in exchange for being on the bleeding edge that benefits a very few number of people. And I've, I've harped on this many times about the number of employees at Facebook versus the number of employees historically at a company like Carnegie Steel or something that, you know, you just don't have a shot at that unless you're in the cognitive elite. Uh, so that's that's the sort of dark side of Silicon Valley. And you most people can't make it there. It's just too expensive. It's too difficult. They're not they're they're not cognitively capable of making it there. Uh, and it's um, it's just not a place for the normal person. So I, it, trying to replicate that, I don't even know if that's something most countries should do, honestly. I think that most countries. Uh, and, and most people um, just flat out aren't aren't cut out for it. And I, I think that uh, you you know they'll have to spend twenty odd years, maybe maybe less, fifteen odd years of real work supplied from a supply side policy perspective, from an institution building perspective, from a capital pooling perspective just uh you know a general perspective of contract laws and and trying to restructure uh, corporate charter laws to really build just the foundations and then there's the element of building talent and there's the element of building an education system usually build that talent there's all there's so many and then for that we did account for. we did account for that we, you know, there were several pieces of legislation passed in the 40s and 50s just having to do with technical education and scientific education and and, and uh, university training and so on, and trying to get all the GIs trained, and trying to transfer a lot of their skills uh, towards universities and towards corporations. We spent over a decade working on that process as a country, and it took a while to pay off, and it took a while to build these talent pools that are necessary for capital that that was done in a time when and, and i'm not i'm not necessarily pro or con on this it's just it, it's i don't know if it's possible today because the, the the time in which the gi bill was passed and sputnik basically happened when the united states got serious about science education and all that which then trickled into some of the bedrock of the foundations for Silicon Valley type uh, innovation. That was a time when Americans were still coming out of a great war, a generation that was raised by people who went through the depression. And it was much more stern and serious group of people versus the people who grew up today who talk about VR porn as innovation and are basically <laughs> thinking that, you know, all they have to do is another photo sharing app or buy clicks on Instagram or buy followers or whatever it is 
to become famous the whole financialization kind of materialism of the culture has corrupted i think the the metal that made the 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 financial wealth and it's it's just a very decadent society i don't see it ever competing against these relatively poor countries like china india that have just through sheer numbers mainly uh, in india's case especially but also in china in terms of just a higher average iq there's just a lot more smarter people and so the globalization has basically shown itself manifest in silicon valley where the majority of people who work at tech companies are foreign born they're not americans and uh, i went to a pretty good school and most of those kids were not american and it was uh, it was very disheartening to me to see that uh and i i felt kind of very alienated by my own country frankly because of that because i i, I look to the past and i saw much more to admire than i saw in the present and so I don't know if, uh, well, the Democrats always promise, you know, education for, for all and that as the salvation, but it's just, it's not going to happen. We don't have the human capital. We don't have the culture for it. And frankly, we're just living in a globalized system that is so hyper-competitive. I don't know if we could ever see what we, we saw in the 60s in Silicon Valley building, you know, building out what became the foundation for what we have today, which is basically a, a global a, a global city, a global metro hub that has nothing to do with America anymore. And if you look at the politics of Google, that that is very clear. So going forward, I, I don't know how this is ever repeated in the United States. Well, you mentioned VR porn. Is is you know? I mean, here's an interesting thing to look at it. There's a book written by uh, David uh, Sue and Mark Kenny uh, that's cited in the Nicholas book, "Organizing Venture Capital: Rise and Demise of uh, the American Research and Development." And there's two pie charts that are seen with that. One is from uh, 1946 to 1950. So RMC was founded to 1950. And then there's another one from 1966 to 1973, which is sort of its death period. It died and broke apart in 1973. Looking at its portfolio. So in from 46 to 50, uh, it's, it had 35% in chemicals, 31% in industrial equipment, 12% in food products, 8% in scientific instruments, uh, 4% in um, earth sciences, 8% in other or unknown, and then a whopping 4% in electronics. You compare that to 66 to 73, and you get 10% uh, chemicals, 7% industrial equipment, 17% scientific instruments, 17% electronics, 17% education and media, uh, and then food products is down, professional services arises, technology publishing becomes a new thing, data processing and storage is a new thing with 3%. You can see right there the you know, shift in the economy and what's getting funded, what's where the innovation is going. And I'll kind of close from a point in the, uh, the, uh, the American Affairs Journal article and uh, Research undertaken by the National Venture Capital Association corroborates the sentiment. 40% of all the companies that have gone public in the United States between 1974 and 2015 received VC funding in their ascent. Those 556 companies account for 85% of all research and development spending, 63% of the public equities market capitalization, and they employ more than 3 million people. 
The critical role of venture stage funding cannot be denied, but there is another less cheerful reason for its growing popularity that should not be overlooked. Venture capital funding is increasingly seen as a substitute for other forms of R&D that are in decline, especially research directly funded by governments. Although the rise of venture capital depended on many conditions furnished by the state, for some, for some its apparent success has been used to justify reduced public R&D spending. Downward pressure on public spending has come from a variety of sources, particularly the promulgation of austerity measures that leave governments increasingly unable to fund basic research, even though this basic R&D is often central to a national industrial strategy, particularly in the technology sector. So, you know, I'll, I'll continue really quick, but thus the, the shortfall in public R&D spending reinforces the argument that venture capitalists are the answer. Since they are private investors flush with money, networks, and expertise, as a result, policymakers often embrace the myth of Silicon Valley as a laissez-faire phenomenon, hoping that they can emulate the success of American venture capital in context of varied state commitment. So what you're saying, Adam, about you know we, we can never be able to do this again, uh, or no one else will ever be able to do this again, is pretty much echoed here in this article, that the, the foundations for the rise of venture capital, as much as I think Say it was a, a very innovative and worthwhile way of allocating capital, good for the economy and the country. Um, it has eroded its own foundations, ironically. And uh, you know, we talked about this with our episode on uh, the Hoover Dam. There is no more industrial, uh, not a lot of industrial infrastructure or infrastructure R and D anymore. We're using. We're still using things that were built 80 years ago. We haven't really come up with new ideas. We haven't even really, you know, found capital sources to build new things from an infrastructure standpoint or a large-scale, heavy industrial standpoint. Uh, we've completely uh, evaded that because I think that as the VC industry really took off, there was always this assumption in the back of everyone's head: all the important stuff, the government. And then there was this assumption, well, all the important stuff the large corporations and, and Silicon Valley can do. Now there's this just general malaise that's set in and realization that uh, we, we re really only fund things that often do not pay off long term or have no discernible effect on like the wider cultural life. Well, let, let, me, let me go on another rant about this. Um, <laughs> If you don't mind, I mean, if we're going to talk about you know modern sort of iterations of the the venture capital game, let's take uh, let's take some of the big ones that have been coming out uh, or attempting to come out pu on public offerings recently. Uh, Uber, WeWork, WeWork, talk about WeWork. Sure, WeWork's uh, founder sold the trademark We, two letters, <laughs> for five point something His million dollars. To this, the uh, this Adam Newman uh, fellow, uh, a, uh, you know, one of our one of our friends from our greatest ally. He was also uh, so WeWork for people that are not familiar um, is uh, basically a, just a short term commercial sub. It's a sharing economy bullshit. That but is... it's not like they they own it. They no, they have own real, real estate or they rent real estate and they sublet it to like you can rent a desk from yeah. them. Yeah, they, they like just lose. Office. They just lose like three dollars for every, every dollar they make. I mean, it's... oh, not only that, but uh, so their actual uh, office space, uh, a lot of it was uh, leased from their CEO. 
<laughs> like this is it, it. I mean, this is why I say like there's a, a money laundering element to yeah. all of this. It doesn't get more clear than yeah. that. Level but Boston of Properties, uh, forget his name, but it, it echoes. Um, he's a big investor, and we work. And I'll, I'll bet you a lot of their properties are leased from Boston Properties as well. Okay. So I mean, this is the other side of it, where if you have uh, things, especially like this was a this was a thing in the first tech bubble in uh, the late '90s. You would have uh, instances where um, startups were essentially um, taking investor money and spending that at other startups. So back then, you actually had to have servers. So it's like you have to write a big check to Sun Microservices or Micro Sun, whatever Sun was. Microsystems. Microsystems. Yeah, microsystems uh, in order to actually get up and running. Now it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, <laughs> I mean, how much. Uh, uh, how much uh, money does Cloudflare uh, rake in from the VC uh, ecosystem? How much does AWS rake in? Like, all of these things are money transmission channels for things where th- significant principal agent problems. Once you look at the the overall ecosystem and the incentives to show paper growth and to, uh, to redirect uh, investors' money to places that are personally beneficial for you. And WeWork is just a particularly scummy example of that, ironically, because they have a you know physical access to physical real estate. Like real estate, you can go to it, you can look to it, you can mortgage it, sell it, burn it down for the, uh, the insurance money, uh, which could be their exit strategy. But the same sort of self-dealing happens, you know, not quite as uh, blatantly, but it, it happens in other uh, parts of that economy as well. Well, I, I just wanted to tap into the, the latest uh, gimmick to kind of uh, riff off what Hans was saying about, are we actually creating anything new anymore? And we work as, as kind of an example of this where they're basically carving up uh, office space. I mean, they're not really doing anything new. They put like some, you know, FICA plants and new modern art or something on the walls, but there's nothing new fundamentally that they're doing other than sharing some capital in a more efficient way, an allocation of sort of some timeshare basically of, of a piece of uh, existing infrastructure. Uber is the same thing. Uh, these stupid scooter companies that have been uh, plaguing the sidewalks of every metro near you uh, has been the one of the dumbest things I've ever seen funded, but their Lime and whatever the other cutesy names that they've come up with. I for these companies. don't discount the possibility that like there's some Chinese dude with the biggest scooter factory in Shenzhen <laughs> that's like sending hookers and blow and getting massive contracts for these semi-disposable uh, right. scooters in return. Right. I mean, it, there's some funny stories too about like the scooters like being found on top of like you know dump trucks and like in canals and I mean just they're just literally 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 littering the streets and people just can chuck them in traffic. Um, this is, you know, venture capital business, but, uh, the whole idea is like sharing something with your peers because everybody's broke. That's the big dark secret. And so you can't own anything anymore. You're just going to own some old thing, old concept, but you'll get a, you, at least it's better than nothing, right? It's better than walking. So you get a, you get to scoot to work or you get to take Uber, which is basically a taxi company, a taxi company app. Uh, and now they're trying to get into food delivery. I mean, th- there's nothing new. It's like, it's just, it's pathetic. It's basically, 
it's just marketing and finance and where's the product innovation? Where's the science advancement? Where's, where's this? I mean, I, I would say on a positive note, you know, and I have my reservations about this as well from more of a moral or philosophical standpoint, but really the only true innovation I'm seeing right now is in biotechnology where they're, they're doing genetic engineering, which can be obviously very problematic for society, but it, it is true hard science and engineering. And I would, I would ascribe a lot of the, the true innovation to that sector. But in terms of the internet sector, it's, I don't know, we, we seem to be kind of played out at this point. It's, it's getting ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the, the future for venture capital is probably just in exploiting astrophysics and exploiting ocean exploration, you know, uh, ocean, ocean floor mining, uh, space ventures, asteroid mining, things like that that seem like you know, real moonshots right now are probably somewhere in their future or their portfolio's future if they're going to retain any real you know, long-term capital growth uh, or innovation. But uh, there is the possibility that venture capital firms don't really uh, actually maybe shift towards becoming really just institutional investors that are just there to finance the maintaining of technical infrastructure not and maybe slightly new ideas for managing it but not really engaged in anything that would be regarded as real innovation or trying to move the the country forward or move the the economy forward i think that's really the risk that we you know that that is becoming more much more prevalent now and that uh the one what was once the the bastion of innovation it will increasingly become just sort of the bastion of mediocrity and maintenance. How society used to give social capital to people has totally changed. So I'll give you an example, right? Like, I'm 37, I just turned 37. Um, you're probably somewhere around 37, a little bit 48. older. 48. Yeah. Um, but when we were growing up, right, the framework of values was, okay, you study hard, you keep your head down, you go to school. Once yeah. you graduate from high school, you go to university, get a degree. Maybe you should get two degrees then you should get a job, then you should save money, have a 401k, save for a house, buy a condo, have a car. And all these things were little ways of signaling to people that things were working and you'd get social capital for it, right? People would walk around and introduce themselves and say, oh, I went to Harvard Business School. And you and I were supposed to say, oh my God, HBS, that's amazing. You must be a really important, powerful person in the world and you would get social capital. But now, structurally, all that shit's out the window. Nobody cares. Or probably more rationally, fewer people than ever have cared and fewer people are caring about that stuff. So take a couple of simple examples. The number of people going to college is way, way down. And it's a trend now that you can see and it's getting replaced by this idea that, hey, you know what, if I have some reasonably useful skills, that's just as important and probably more important than getting a degree and I don't have to be in debt and I don't have to have the stress of how am I going to pay this off and I don't have to have some crappy job and know that I went to school for four years to have a crappy job. I can have a crappy job with, you know, a couple of months of education. I mean, I'm making fun, but, you know, so yeah. that's that's something that's happening. If you look at ownership rates of Or houses, you can get educated online now. Well, this right? is my point. I yeah. mean, like, why would you go to school to learn to code at Carnegie Mellon, a grade school? or University of Waterloo, where I went to. Yeah. And why would you spend tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars when you can go to Treehouse yeah. and learn every single framework you need to learn 
and learn it for $30 a month or less, yep. and they'll get you a job, or and they'll help you get you know retrained, yep. and they'll, they'll make you stay relevant, um, why wouldn't you do that? Yep. And if it can work for coding, which is sort of like the unit of value for Silicon Valley on top of which trillions of dollars of value is created, I presume it can probably work for a whole bunch of other you know, blue-collar but also quasi-white-collar, blue-collar work. And the problem historically is we didn't give that enough social capital for it to work, right? Yeah. We would look down on people that went to college and not some really fancy university. Or we would look down on someone that went to community college versus college and all the way down, right? You would pass yeah. the buck down. That's not true anymore, yeah. right? You're seeing people who didn't even go to school start the most important companies in the world. Yeah. You're seeing them hire people not based on where they went to school, but their ability to solve coding questions or other problems or demonstrate their ingenuity in other ways. That's awesome. Right. And so yeah. so that's changing. You look at like ownership rates of houses in the U.S. That's completely crashing through the floor. Everyone's renting. You know, you look at ownership rates of things like simple like cars. Even that's changing when you look at usage patterns of things like Uber and other forms of transportation. And it's going so, to dramatically change in my son's lifetime. Right. hundred percent. With, with self-driving cars. hundred percent. Because he's but, not going to own a but, car. Exactly. But here's the point. Yeah. All of those things that used to be ways of signaling are gone. So the really interesting question is, well, what are they replaced by? So to me, that answering that problem yeah. is a really interesting problem. Do you, do you agree with like Jeremiah Oyang, who calls it a collaborative economy? Or? Well, so I think that's trying to put a veneer, a superficial interpretation on something that's profoundly more sociological. Like this is like, for example, it that doesn't explain ownership rates or it explains why you want to use Airbnb. But it doesn't really explain why you'll take all your free cash flow and use it to plan Burning Man and spend it there or go to EDC or spend 10000 at Hakkasan. It doesn't explain that. Yeah. What explains it is a fundamental reallocation of value. Because now in this world where we live in a visually stimulating environment where you're supposed to capture your memories and get external validation in places like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, yeah. where you're spending 90% of your time anyways, and where you've been told and you've been trained that that's where social value starts and stops. Yeah. You react to what they reward. And so you're much better off as a 25-year-old guy spending $5,000 at Hakkasan and getting awesome pictures of you and some models and posting it and getting 500 likes than you are renting a Prius or leasing a Prius. Yeah. So instead, you'll just take an Uber to the airport, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So all of these simple things, they start off, by the way, in these very superficial ways, but they have much more deep-seated ramifications in 10 or 15 years when it's all said and done.